Today we'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let Lord bless the reading of the word. You may be seated. Uh, thank you, Breck, for filling in. Uh, if you don't know, Moy has another little Moy named Santiago. Um, I won't say it, but Santiago is way cuter than Moy. And so uh, if you were coming to this church because we had a handsome, rugged, good-looking Venezuelan worship pastor, well, now come because he's got a cute little baby. Um, so uh, we are happy for him and giving him a couple weeks off uh, to... Uh, uh, just rest and recuperate and figure out the whole dad thing in two weeks and then come back. And so, um, so anyway, if you will just join me in a moment of prayer before we open up God's word and uh, let's humble ourselves to receive what he has to say for us today. Father God, we come to the end of our study of what it means to be disciples of your son. Father, I pray uh, that you will help us, God, in this moment to really, truly dig down deep and to discover whether or not these characteristics are true in us. Father, I pray for myself, Father, that I as a pastor will be a disciple, not for the sake of pastoring, Father, but for the sake of modeling. God, I pray that you will uh, be with my poor words today. Father, my um, insufficient description of what you have to say. I pray that it will break hearts, Father, that it will encourage, that it will build up. Father, we just pray that you will do your good work in us. Father, there's so many people here who are dealing with struggles and distractions, Father, and uh, things at work, things at home, Father. I just pray that you speak peace to them. Father, as always, Myla is on our hearts and on our minds, and we pray, uh, Lord, that you will do your good work in her life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we come to the end of our uh, series, What is a Disciple? The Bible's view of discipleship, I hope you see, is very much cyclical, meaning that it begins with the church recognizing its mission to make disciples, and it ends with disciples being made who will go on to make other disciples. So our mission as a church, simply put, is to be a disciple-making church that will make disciple-making disciples. That's as repetitious as I can put it. So a disciple-making church that will, be a deci- that will make disciples who make disciples. Now, this leads us, I hope, to see that the final description of a, uh, of a disciple is that of a missionary or someone who ga- engages in, joins in God's mission to the world, to both neighbors and to nations. The Great Commission, as we saw at the very first sermon of this series, fuels discipleship. And now, as we will see today, discipleship fulfills the Great Commission. And the engine that keeps this cycle running, the fire that keeps this thing burning, the heart that keeps the process alive, 
is the truth that Jesus is crucified and that he is risen again and he lives forever at the right hand of God as our Lord and Savior and as our mediator. Mission begins with the Messiah, always. That's what sets us off as unique. I hope you know that all four Gospels have some version of a commission. Matthew 28 has the clearest one. They're standing on a mountain and he literally says to them, Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, he appears to his disciples while they're reclining at a table. And he says, go into all the world and proclaim to all nations, to to the whole creation, about this gospel that he has given them. In Luke 24, Jesus walks on the road and then he appears to his disciples again. And you hear this biblical expectation that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Well, the Gospel of John is no exception. It has its own great commission, and it's found here in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, in which Jesus unexpectedly appears to his disciples who are locked away in this hidden room. Now, they're, they're shocked, and they're surprised, and they're broken, and they're mourning the fact that their Savior died, but Jesus left them in, in no shadows about what he was about to do. In fact, he said that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. He said of himself that the Son of Man must, didn't say might, he said must, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, John records how bloody this whole ordeal actually was. Before being marched away to Golgotha, he was whipped with a cat of nine tails, which left his back in ribbons and scarred. He was dressed in a purple robe. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was forced to carry his own cross, which, according to Hebrews 12, he embraced with joy. And after being nailed to the cross, they mocked him. They put up an inscription above his head and said, Jesus, Nazareth, King of the Jews. They didn't mean it, but that's what they were mocking him for. He languished, he struggled for breath, tried to pull himself up by nails in his hands to take a gasp of air, even became thirsty, hanging out in the middle of the sun on the cross. And then he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and died, and to ensure that he was dead, the Roman executioners, who were very good at their work, took the spear, and they thrust it into his side, went straight through lungs and heart, pulled it back out again. No one could survive that. He was wrapped in linen cloths provided by Joseph of Arimathea and laid in Joseph's tomb. And after the songs had been sung and the laments had been sung, they rolled the stone over the entrance of the tomb. Silence on the inside, weeping on the outside. Jesus was dead. That is until the first day of the week when Mary Magdalene comes to the garden tomb. And in this air of expectation happens as she sees that the stone has been taken away. So she freaks out and she runs back and tells Peter and John. And they freak out and come running back to the tomb. And Peter must have been a chubby little dude because John beat him. And John wants everybody to know that he beat Peter to the tomb. But if Peter was a chubby little guy, slow, and couldn't win a foot race. John was a scaredy cat. Peter goes into the tomb. John stays out. I was like, well, empty tombs. I'm not going in. They find out that the tomb's empty, and they're confused. And it says deliberately in John chapter 20, verse 9, that they did not yet understand 
that he must rise from the dead. So they go back home. Mary's left standing out there, and she's weeping and crying. She doesn't know where her Savior is, where her Lord has been taken. But then her weeping's put to an end when Jesus makes himself known. She sees him. She calls him Rabboni, my teacher. And then she runs off and tells Peter and John and the other disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now, for many of you, this might be elementary. You learned all this in, what, grade school, Sunday school, right? But I, but I, I just think it's important to see that every gospel's commission is preceded by the suffering and crucifixion of the Messiah. And the fact that every commission in the gospel is preceded by suffering and death, burial and resurrection, that's instructive for us. There is no commission without crucifixion and resurrection. There isn't one. If Jesus had not died, there's no message of reconciliation to proclaim. If Jesus had not risen again, there's no need to make disciples because there's no one to follow. The church's mission to disciple the nations is dependent completely on that truth that our Messiah died and rose again. I don't think the gospel writers ever intended for us to go and flip to the back of the book straight to the commission. I think they intend for us to read through the story, to understand, begin at the cross, march to Golgotha, see the nails, hear his cry, hear the words, it is finished. Because before we hear the words, go therefore, we must first bask in the beauty of it is finished. Sometimes we just go out of duty. It's what we do. We go. Sometimes we've got to reach our our limit of how many missionaries we've got to send or how many people have got to respond. And we talk all about being missional and being a missional church. And sometimes missions and missional comes up with numbers and statistics and bar charts and pie charts and guilty pleas and all that. But I don't think that's what the heart of being missional is. To be missional means to be gospel-centered. To be missional means to be so taken up with the fact that God sent his son to die and raise again that we are now motivated to go just like Mary went and tell people, I have seen the Lord. That is what being missional is all about. We can send missionaries. We can look at bar charts. We can look at pie charts. We can make all these things. We can send people across the world. But if we do not send people who are motivated by the fact that Jesus lives and will never die again, and that his death for once, for one time, was sufficient for all time to clear me of all guilt, then it's not truly being missional. Gospel-centered, transfixed on the cross, transfixed on the empty tomb, taken up with the truth that Jesus reigns. That's what it means to be missional and to be motivated from there. As we will see from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, it's the sight of the risen Savior that leads to three things. Number one, it leads to the transformation of the disciples. Number two, it invites them into Jesus' mission. And number three, it equips them for gospel proclamation. Those three things happen when they see the risen Savior. What the resurrection did for them, and this is my hope, what the resurrection did for them 
is what will do for us. When we think about and we bask on our resurrected Lord, that we will be transformed, that we will be invited into and equipped for God's gospel proclamation throughout all the earth. Now, verses 19 and 20 begin this way. On the evening of that day, that same day that Mary found the empty tomb and saw her Lord, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, John's remarkably transparent in his gospel. He's constantly sharing things that, that most people who want to protect the disciples' reputation, they're not going to put in there. Things like, I beat Peter to the tomb. Peter's slow, right? Um, he's, he's, he's quick to put in all these details that are just transparent. Well, here's one of them. Where were the disciples after the cross? They were not bravely believing and holding visual next to the tomb, waiting for Jesus to walk out. They were hiding. They're in locked rooms. I mean, they're thinking about, okay, our rabbi has just been publicly executed in one of the most atrocious ways in human history. We've just seen him slaughtered, literally, on the cross. Who's next? The disciples. Surely they're next. Surely they're the ones that are on the list of execution. Now, John's mention of the disciples' fear, I think, does more than just provide a transparent moment of weakness. I think what he's doing is he's giving us a sharp contrast between disciples before seeing resurrected Jesus and then disciples after resurrected Jesus. There's a clear progression in just two verses from fear to incredible joy. And at the center of that progression and that transformation is a risen Lord who stands in front of them and says, Peace be with you. Now, here's the question. Why would Jesus say, Peace be with you? Why would that be the first words out of his mouth after the resurrection? The actual Hebrew greeting at that moment, I can just imagine just the, just the solemnness of that moment. They're all freaking out and they're scared and then all of a sudden they hear the sweet, familiar voice, Shalom. They all turn and they see it's Jesus. So what would peace unto you say to them as their first moments, after the first moments of resurrection? I think it's this. Jesus is showing them, hey, I'm the same Lord and Savior you knew before my death. It was in John chapter 14, verse 27, that he said to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So before the cross, he says to them, Shalom. After the cross, resurrected, standing in in their presence, he's saying Shalom. He's come to restore Shalom, peace between God and man. He's come to settle the chaos of our fall. He's come to settle the chaos of our brokenness. He's come to take our broken world, the curse, and everything in it, and bring shalom. Now that's what Jesus has been doing since then. Continuing to speak this message of peace. 
beginning first and foremost with the most important, peace between God and sinners. Peace between God and those who are alienated from him. There will be soon peace that we will see, that we will touch. We will see it in creation. God will make all things new. Peace will be fully given. In its highest intensity that we've ever had. Peace so thick you can feel it. And yet, right now Jesus is resurrected, speaking shalom over those who have been separated from God. Now, when he spoke peace over them, he showed them his hands and his side, in which they still see the scars of crucifixion. These are like his credentials. You want to know what right he has to stand in front of them and speak peace and declare peace between God and man? Look at the nail holes. Look at the hole in the side. I have died. I have risen again. And here, look at the scars if you doubt them. He has the right and he has divine authority to declare peace between God and man. This was no apparition. This was no ghost. This was no vision. He who was once dead for humanity now stood physically in their presence. To be seen, to be heard, and to be touched. My friends, do you find that boring? And we are so familiar with this story, aren't we? It's kind of cool. My friends, this is life-changing. It's transformative. They are faced, they encounter the risen Lord, and then Jesus chases away their fear and replaces it with joy. These fearful disciples locked away in a hidden room, afraid that they're next on the chopping blocks, then become the guys who are publicly preaching in Acts 2 and are willing even to tell the high priest, who, by the way, sentenced their Savior, do what you must, we must obey God. And at the center of it all is this resurrected Savior. My friends, I want you to understand, the risen Lord and the truth of that is not just a fun fact about salvation history. It's not just the gospel one-on-one. It is the means through which we are transformed. It is only because Jesus reigns, Jesus lives, Jesus died and will never die again. That we put down our bitterness and we become people who forgive. We put down our hatred and we become people who love. We put down our, our selfishness. And we become sacrificial servants. At the center of all transformation stands the fact that we have a Lord who lives, which means that untransformed Christians are speaking an anti-gospel. Have we ever thought about that? That might sound convicting. Let me just tell you, I've, I've had that on myself this week as well. The old self actually speaks a different message. The old self contradicts and it counters the message that Jesus has died, he rose again, and he has come to make all things new, beginning with new creatures in Christ. We are transformed for mission. We are transformed from the inside out. Fear becoming faith. Bitterness becoming love. Hatred being completely set aside. It was Jesus who stood in front of them. It was Jesus who transformed them. 
as a risen Savior who made them able to do what they were commissioned to do. And in this way, we too are transformed by the gospel's power for the gospel's proclamation. We must be people who are transformed. We must be people who are changed by the truth that our Savior lives. And to let that truth that Jesus lives take over every aspect of our life, turn over every sin, overturn every idol, get rid of every rebellion, so that we may then be obedient and do what God has called us to do as Great Commission Christians. The risen Savior transforms. Next. As disciples, we are transformed for mission, but it is to a particular mission to which we are called, the mission of Christ. In verse 21, Jesus says this. He says it again, shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, even so I am sending you. He repeated his blessing a second time and then added his intent to send out his disciples He would send them just as he had been sent. Jesus had been sent into the world to accomplish redemption, and now he's sending them out into the world to proclaim redemption. His mission would be continued through their mission. The mission of propitiation, which is the cross, is followed by the mission of proclamation, which is what we do. It's the same mission. It's just a continuation. Our mission is a continuation of his Luke picks up this fact in Acts 1. He's writing to Theophilus. And if you know, Luke has written both the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts. Luke, we we often sometimes say, is all about Jesus. And Acts, sometimes we errantly say, that is all about the apostles. That's not what Luke says, though. Luke, he writes to Theophilus and he says, In my first book, I I I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up. What does that imply? If Luke is all about, the gospel of Luke is all about what Jesus began to do, then by nature, Acts is all about what Jesus continued to do. It's not just about the apostles, it's not just about the church. It's Jesus' mission being continued in and through his apostles by the hope of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit. He says this again in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that it was the Lord who added to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, Paul explains further in 2 Corinthians 5, after proclaiming our unity with Christ in his death and resurrection and telling us that uh, Christ has come to bring a new creation, here's what he says in verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, reconciling the world to us, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now notice this progression. Christ came. He reconciled the world to God. Now believers are entrusted with that message of reconciliation. His work leads into our work. His reconciliation leads into our proclamation of reconciliation. What now? What does that mean for us? If we're preaching the gospel of reconciliation, what does that mean? Paul says it in verse 20. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Us doing our work for God. Us completing the Great Commission. Us working in our own strength and ability to make disciples. That's not what he says. Therefore, we ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is why mission's not optional. It's God's continued work in what he was doing in Christ. This is why being a missional Christian, a gospel-centered Christian that goes out and actually speaks the good news to others, this is why it's not optional. Jesus calls us and invites us into this mission. Every single person that hears and believes the gospel, every gospel-centered church that is planted... Every unreached people group that gets a translated copy of God's words is proof that King King Jesus is still in the business of building his church. That King Jesus is still expanding his kingdom. It's not just our mission. It's not just the duty. It's Jesus' mission through us. God making his appeal to the world through us. Well, you don't understand. I'm not gifted for evangelism. That's not what's on the table. You don't understand. I'm really an introvert. Again, not on the table. What's on the table is what must we be in order to be disciples of Christ. And one of the things that we find is that disciples are those who follow Jesus into his mission for his world. That's what God calls us to do. To be a disciple is one who is sent by Jesus just as he was sent by his father. Here's the thing. As much as we complain about our jobs, how often do we consider that we were sent into our workplaces? Has anyone had any awkward family reunions this year? Thanksgiving, wait for it, a couple months. How many of us complain and groan about the fact that Thanksgiving's coming and, and I'm... You know, I've done this before. And you just don't understand the way my sister is. You don't understand the way my brother is. You don't understand the way Uncle Joe is. You don't understand the way Granny sticks her finger in the dessert. And we think about these awkward family get-togethers and how how much tension there is. You could just cut the tension with a butter knife. How often do you actually think, though, that God sent you into that family? To be a light in the darkness. To be a message of hope in the midst of tension. To be the message of reconciliation with God in a room full of people who will not be reconciled to each other without him. You might hate your job. You might hate your house. You might hate your situation. And yet in all things we have been promised that Jesus sends us into these things on mission, which makes them ultimately more glorious than we could ever think they are. You might deliver ice cream. You might be a technology director. You might be a pastor. You might be someone who just looks at the budget all day long. But the reality is, as Jesus has given you a glorious mission, he has sent you into the place that you are. And wherever you are, that is your mission field. That is your commission. This includes suffering as well. God has a purpose in the suffering. 
God has a mission in the misery. I don't like to think that God causes the misery. Maybe he does. I know he's sovereign. I know he allows it. I don't think he causes people to sin. But God does allow the suffering to happen because he is a sovereign God. It has to pass through him and to us. My big question, though, is what does God hope to get out of the suffering? What is God's goal in leading us and allowing us to suffer? I mean, we see Ruth's husband dies. Naomi loses both children and her father. And you see what God does there. His mission is the world, even in widowhood. His mission is the world, even in losing sons. His mission is the world, even in exile. God's mission always is to bring this message of hope and reconciliation and peace in Jesus Christ explicitly through suffering. It's it's the, the loudest microphone that we have that our God is a missional God and his mission is to redeem us. So my friends, before we, we, we feel this tension in our lives, in our situations, in our jobs, in our workplaces, in our families, I think we must think first that Jesus has sent us just as God has sent his son, which for Jesus meant death. And sometimes your situation will feel like death. I enjoy Thanksgiving um, dinners at my family's house. Uh, we, we watch football and everybody sleeps, and so it's great. Um, but yeah, there, I can understand. There's sometimes that family tensions feel like crucifixion. Being around other people, you would rather just have somebody hit you with a cat of nine tails. There's sometimes that it seems like nails through the wrist would be more bearable than going and seeing your boss. Well, that's good news, right? If your mission, if your situation feels like death, that means you have probably joined into the mission of Christ because his mission was to die. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if your motherhood, your fatherhood, your career, your neighborhoods, if it feels like bearing a cross, guess what? That means you are epically involved in the mission of Christ. And this is a great time to die on your Golgotha and watch the world stand in awe at your resurrection and the coming of Christ. What a great time to lay it all down, to display the power and glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to suffer in everything you do. I enjoy lots of elements of being a pastor. But there are moments that we must die. There are moments that we must be willing to bear the cross. And so when Jesus is calling in his disciples, just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He's calling Peter to be hung on a cross upside down. He's calling John to be boiled and then exiled. He's calling Thomas to go to northern Africa and be speared to death. Sometimes being invited into the mission of Christ means to take up the suffering of Christ. Difficult marriage, what better place to die? What better place to take up a cross than in the context of a marriage where you can be Christ on the cross to those who watch? So, we have this resurrected Savior who transforms his disciples and this resurrected Savior who gives them an invitation to join in mission. Third, 
Jesus had no intention of sending out his disciples in their own power and strength. If they were to be sent just as he was sent, then they must be sent with the Holy Spirit. Here's what verse 22 says. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. I wonder what it would have felt like to have Jesus breathe on us. This, the, this resurrected Savior. And then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of confusion about this. It stirred up lots of questions. Did the apostles actually receive the Holy Spirit here? Or do they receive it later in Acts 2? Because Acts 2 seems to be where they receive it. In fact, in, in uh, uh, other Gospels, it says that they must stay in Jerusalem after Jesus has ascended and wait for the gift. So which is it? Are they receiving the, the Holy Spirit here? Or what is Jesus doing actually here with breathing on them and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit? Here's what I think. In John sixteen seven, Jesus told them that it was to their benefit that he would leave them. Because if I stay, the helper will not come to you. So he's, he's deliberately saying in John's gospel, he must leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come. So I don't think, Jesus hasn't gone away yet, so I don't think that what Jesus is doing is definitively giving them the Holy Spirit at this moment. What I do think he's doing, based on what it seems in context, is he's giving them a sort of acted parable, an illustration. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit in the context of them receiving the Great Commission, in the context of them being told, just as I have been sent by my Father, so I'm sending you. It was Jesus showing them how they would accomplish their mission. He says, just as I'm sent, I'm sending you. <sighs> Breathe the, receive the Holy Spirit. That is how they're going to do it. He's equipping them to do what he's called them to do. Now, Jesus' breath being over them, I think, echoes Jesus' promise in Matthew 28. In which he says, and behold, I am with you. What's closer than breath? Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. It displays how near he is to us as disciples. As close as breath, someone breathing on you. That's Jesus' presence with his people. Receive the Holy Spirit. And it's with that anticipation that they're to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. Now, what will the Spirit enable them to do? Well, that's said in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, in this, Jesus isn't promising unmitigated power. Like some denominations and different religions have have claimed that because of the Holy Spirit, we now have the right to determine, you know, we can play the any, mini, mighty, mo game, and we're going to decide who's forgiven and who's not. That's not what this is saying. In fact, if you go all the way back to Luke 5, 1, you see the truth that no one but God can forgive sins alone. So it mustn't mean, hey, disciples, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can then go be jerks and tell everyone in which one of your political enemies are going to hell and which ones aren't. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that as they preach the gospel, as they preach the message of forgiveness, as they preach the message of Jesus Christ, those who believe are declared forgiven. It's a beautiful moment when I sit in my office and then there's someone who says, you know, I've listened to the gospel many times 
and I want to believe. And it's, it's just nothing beats it than me listening and hearing them and hearing their profession of faith and, and hearing how sincere they are in it. And, and I, I think that based on what I can see, I think they believe and being able to say, because you believe in Jesus Christ, you stand forgiven. That's not authority that I have in and of myself. It's just authority of the gospel. It's just objectively true. Whoever believes the gospel stands forgiven. Whoever rejects the gospel stands condemned. And so as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit and the authoritative gospel. Paul says as much, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he says that we are to be the aroma of Christ. We're made a fragrance that everybody can smell. To some, it's a fragrance of life. To some, it's a fragrance of death. We have no control over whether it's a life, a fragrance of life or a fragrance of death. We simply can be the fragrance. We simply can be the aroma. But God has given us that ability by the power of his Holy Spirit. It is God who saves. One commentator says it this way. There is no doubt from the context that the reference is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But though this sounds stern and harsh, is simply the result of preaching the gospel, which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel. And so they are left in, in their sins. My friends, when you share the gospel, there's something infinite happening there. You are sending out the invitation and the offer of, of eternal forgiveness and reconciliation with God. World be brought back to God. People have a relationship with God. It's an amazing gospel message. And at the center of it stands a risen Savior who's given the Holy Spirit so that we can do what we've been called to do. And at the end of it, based on whether they believe the gospel or deny the gospel, they either stand forgiven or stand condemned. Gospel proclamations are awkward because of that. At the end of the day, how they respond to our message determines their life or their death, their forgiveness or their judgment, their reconciliation with God or God's retribution on their own heads. This is what God has given us as a church. He has given us a powerful gospel message, and it is by that that people may be saved by that, that people may be forgiven. By that, that people are judged. Not simply because we decide who will and who won't. Not simply because we have written off a certain group of people and now they're lost and we're saved. That's not it. At the center of it stands who responds to the gospel. Now, and conclusion. Just as it is an fathomable to think of a gospel without a great commission so it should also be unfathomable to be a disciple without a mission it is a key characteristic of being a disciple that you will go and make disciples it's not a guilt plea it's not a shame base it's not i'm not trying to tell you hey keep tally notes on a on a on a little post-it note and come back every week to the church and tell me how well you did. That's not, that's not what any of this is. 
At the end of the day, what being a disciple is all about is being transformed by the risen Savior, carrying on his mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. We do that day after day in little encounters through co-workers, through uh, neighbors, through family members, in, in the lives of our children. Have you ever thought you cannot be a gospel-centered, great commission mother without the help of the Holy Spirit, without the transformation that comes through resurrection, without Jesus inviting you into that mission. And if he has given you children and you are a Christian, then that's your number one invitation. It's already been RSVP'd for you. That is what you are to do. Make disciples who will then grow up and then make disciples. If you have a job, what a perfect place. Lots of people together with you 40 hours of a week. See you in your best and your worst. And ability to testify even in your mistakes. Oh man, yeah, I'm sorry I lost my temper with Jenny the other day. But um, there's a God who's forgiven me of far worse. So please forgive me because I know God has. These little interactions here and there. That, they, don't, they don't always make a full gospel presentation, but they give enough to invite people in to begin to talk about the full gospel. That we are sinners who have rebelled against our Creator. That Jesus has been given to save us from our sins. That He died for us and that He rose again. And those who believe will be saved. Do you see yourselves as on mission? Every single person, whatever context. Neighbors, nations. They all are dependent on us to hear the gospel, but God's not dependent on us. He's just sent us. We're dependent on God to complete that mission. The unreached people groups of the world are not sitting there going, well, the end can't come until you guys come and tell us the gospel. That's not what's happening. God is sending, God is commissioning, God is raising up, God is sending workers into the harvest. And those who are being sent are followers of Christ. So, what then can be said about a disciple? What is a disciple? Week after week we have said this. A disciple is, according to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a student, a servant, whose service reenacts the kindness of Christ, a giver who's giving mirrors the way Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in grace, in worship, a worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth, a family member who knows that God has saved a people, not just a person. God has saved a people and desires that they may become one in the faith. And then finally, a missionary who joins in the mission of Christ. If making disciples is our Magna Carta, then being these six things, student, servant, giver, worshiper, family member, missionary, these six things, that is our church's modus operandi. It's the mode of our operations. It is the, it is the way we do what we do, is by being these six, six things. Not by building new programs, not just by building new facilities, not by doing all these catchy things or having skinny jeans or anything like that. We make disciples fulfilling our Magna Carta predominantly by being disciples. The center of being a gospel-centered church, are you ready for this? This is the secret of it all. The secret to being a gospel-centered church, ready, 
is to be gospel-centered. Profound, I know. The secret to making disciples, ready, is to be a disciple. The secret to making followers of Jesus is to follow Jesus. It's not complex. All of our discipleship processes and books and trainings and theories of how it all works together, that's what Scripture says. Disciples make disciples. And to make disciples, you must be a disciple. It's cyclical. And that's what Jesus is doing. Every single person, the the more they're transformed, the more they're made into the image of Christ, the more they're brought into the discipleship of Christ, the more they're equipped to go then and make disciples. Now, Jesus, through the proclamation of the gospel, causes us to be these things. And it's by keeping our eyes on him alone that we are increasingly transformed into his image, reflecting the glory of God. And here's what we know about discipleship and the glory that comes from it. To him be the glory. Right? This is why we do it. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we end our seven weeks together on what is a disciple. And my hope is is that these won't just be catchy phrases that are heard around our church, but that they will be the lifeblood of who we are. And that you will constantly ask yourself on a daily basis, on Monday, on Tuesday, in the living room on Wednesday, in the workplace on Thursday morning, am I being a student? Am I being a servant? Am I being a giver? Am I being a worshiper, a family member, a missionary? And constantly asking those things. Because if you are being those six things, you are being a disciple. And if we're being disciples together, we'll be a disciple-making church, and the Great Commission will be fulfilled in this place. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these six core identities that you have given us through your word. Father, I think there's much more to being a disciple. There's much more, and this isn't exhaustive at all, Father, but it's a start. So Father, help us as a church and as a group of disciples to be students, to be servants, to be givers, to be worshipers and family members, and Lord, to be missionaries who join in your mission. We love you, Father, and we pray that you will transfix us on Jesus, that we will be transformed by the powerful gospel that Jesus has rose again. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.